The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome Pastor Tabidi Anyabwile, or Pastor T. Pastor T serves as the pastor of Anacostia River Church out in the D.C. area. He is a husband and a father, and he has written several books, including his most recent, What is a Healthy Church Member? Also, recently, his church organized a march and a prayer session that led hundreds of people to the U.S. Capitol and to the White House. This was a march that was significant in its own right, but you may have actually seen it on the news nationally because Mitt Romney showed up at this march. We're going to talk more about about the significance of that during our conversation. But today, Pastor T is going to really be our pastor in this time. We're gonna talk about some of the theology behind suffering and what it means to lean on faith in these times. I look forward to you hearing the conversation. If you have not done so yet, if you would head over to iTunes and rate and review The New Activist, we would love to hear in those reviews who you would like to see on the show in future, and we would be super appreciative for your five stars. It does help people find the show and to hear these important conversations, like this one that I get to have with Pastor T. Pastor T, can I call you? I've, I've yeah. been told that that's the the, the <laughs> that's cooler name. Very very appropriate to, to call me that. That's what everybody calls me. I think it's cool. Um, you lead Anacosta River Church in D.C. And for those in the audience who are not familiar with the church, can you tell us a bit about your church and the community that it's in? Yeah, we're a five-year-old church plant. Um, we are in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C. That's in the southeast quadrant of Washington, D.C., east of the Anacostia River. Um, a neighborhood peopled with a lot of beautiful folks and a lot of needs and issues. And so we felt called to come plant the church here, um, stake the rest of our lives on the gospel and mm. the gospel making a difference in a community um, needing needing a difference to be made. Mm. What are the, the needs of it? Because this is the Ward 8 area, is that That's correct. correct? That's okay. correct. What are the needs of, of that community? Uh, opportunity, hmm. employment, um, affordable housing, uh, appropriate equitable investment in education and the schools on this side of the uh, of the river. There are challenges, of course, um, as throughout the whole city with um, drug use and violence and things of that sort. Hmm. Uh, but I think the most fundamental need in the community is spiritual. Uh, need for the gospel um, and opportunity-based, the need to actually participate in the wider economy of the city and the region and to participate in what the country offers on a in a fair and equitable and open way. Mm. I, I, I want to talk, um, I, I know, and we've kind of pre-emailed about this, but a lot of this interview is going to be uh, around the the uptick in national dialogue that's been happening with um, the the 
string of murders and this, the murders are not a new news story, but there's something about the the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others uh, that that has awakened something in the national consciousness. And so I'm curious how your community, how the Ward 8 community has been hearing and responding to to the events that of the last few months. I think the reaction has been mixed. Hmm. And what I mean by that is I think there's the obvious recognition that the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery are are gross and evil injustices, whether whether perpetrated by an officer of the state or perpetrated by vigilante neighbors. Um, What we saw in those videos were uh, just telling depictions of depravity and injustice. And so there is the, the righteous indignation of um, that, that one has just witnessing that. But I think in, in our part of the woods, um, there's also a kind of uh, despair that is um, commonplace, not just in response to things of this sort, but in response to um, generational poverty, in response to uh, community violence, in response to the lack of opportunity. And so there's there's indignation on the one hand, and and there is a kind of resignation sometimes that comes from despair on the other hand. And so you'll you'll find everything in between those kinds of poles in terms of people's reaction. Um, and and there's a deep there can be a deep um, despair that just comes from yeah this is not the first instance we're, we're not. We're not shocked. This is a long history of police brutality and injustice. Um, and there can be a kind of, yeah, it can be a kind of unbelief, a kind of hopelessness that that kicks in um, as you just sort of witness these things um, year after year, it seems, uh, summer after summer, it seems. Uh, but as you mentioned, there's, I think, at large, in the culture at large, these this seems to have sort of uh, also triggered a, a an unusual, at least in my lifetime, yeah. kind of recognition of the injustice and an unusual outpouring of of protests and um, an unusual level of agreement that there is a problem and that it needs immediate redress. So at the same time that you might have a, a, a beleaguered community dealing with all that it deals with, uh, I think we have a wider national community that in some ways feels freshly awakened to things. Yeah, so you've that was that was the the is the follow up. Do you feel like a thing is happening, or or is this just a is this just a news story that's going to be around for a month, or are we sitting in sort of the next phase of the civil rights movement? I, I don't know if that's fair to categorize it that way, but I'm curious from your perspective, what's happening? Yeah, I think we have been in the next phase of the civil rights movement for a long time mm. now, at least mm. since Trayvon Martin. Yeah, that's um, right. it's interesting. If you go back and listen to Dr. King's speeches, there, there's a Spotify playlist, for example, uh, or channel. If you go and just listen to his speeches, um, almost every speech at some point he he references police brutality. Hmm. Uh, so this has been in the in the consciousness of of civil rights types at least since the 50s, right? Uh, it's been the consciousness in the consciousness of black community for much longer. But this is in the last 10 years, 15 years or so, it's been the first time where um, police misconduct has actually been the sort of um, signal issue in, in the civil rights movement. 
Um, before, if you go back to Dr. King, of course, voting and voting rights and those things are are kind of the signal and symbolic issue of enfranchisement and inclusion. Uh, well, voting rights have, have been largely accomplished. They still have to be protected um, against gerrymandering and all kinds of other things, voter suppression. But that's been largely a success of the classic civil rights movement. Uh, the unfinished work includes uh, things like police brutality. So I think we're very much in the sort of next phase of this movement. Uh, and like the classic civil rights movement, it's taken a while for um, for this issue to really strike the American conscience uh, in the same way that, say, it took a while for integration uh, to strike the conscience. Uh, and so we've had like the last 10 years of incidents like this um, being recorded on body cams and, and, and cell phones. And we've had 10 years of this being sort of like an IV dripped into the bloodstream of mm-hmm. the country. And, and now it, it feels like there's been kind of a critical mass reach and there uh, has been the awakening of, of conscience uh, about this issue. And so it feels like a, a very unique moment um, in, this, in this phase of the civil rights movement to me. What does it feel like to lead a church in this kind of moment? Because I imagine, I mean, you know that there's been a, every Sunday morning, people are hanging on your leadership. Um, How do you process that? How do you handle the weight of a community looking at you and saying, what, what now? Well, I think my own personal approach to that is, is kind of twofold. Um, The Apostle Paul says something uh, in his letter to the Corinthians that, he did not want their faith to rest on his eloquence, but on the power of God. Uh, and so in the first instance, I, I want to sort of make sure that I'm uh, in the midst of these things and, and in so-called regular times, I am building the weight of people's hopes and expectations on the broad, omnipotent shoulders of Christ himself. So I'm preaching the gospel, pointing to Christ. Um, endeavoring to help us get our arms deep into the treasure of God's Word and to pull out every gold and silver coin that we can find there. Um, And so in the first instance, I I don't want to center myself. I want to center Jesus. Hmm. Um, In the second instance, I think what has become increasingly clear for me, and I've had to learn this over the last five years, is that the other thing that needs to be centered is the sort of suffering and the needs and the perspective of those people um, who are who are suffering the injustice? That's really important in multi-ethnic churches. My own church is probably sixty-five percent African American, um, and then the, the remaining thirty-five percent is white and Caribbean, and uh, a handful of Asian American members. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think I've had to learn that this sort of broad evangelical approach to the Scripture of just sort of trying to preach it in this assumed neutral position uh, is actually a disservice to people who are suffering. So when we saw the sharp uptick in anti-Asian uh, racism this year, following the outbreak of the coronavirus and following, um, frankly, racist and foolish comments from the administration, um, we, we thought it very important right away to say, hey, uh, we condemn these kinds of things as a church community. Uh, we want to care for not just Asian American Christians who are members of our churches. We definitely want to do that, but we want to we want to care for the Asian American community at large, whether Christian right. or not, because the racism is being aimed at them at large. 
And so we want to express a solidarity with those who are suffering and those who are uh, facing injustice. And so part of what I need to do as a leader in the church is to get people to understand solidarity and the appropriate basis of solidarity. There is one kind that we have as Christians, but that's going to be insufficient when we're trying to sort of connect with people who are who are suffering, not because they're Christians, but because they're Asian or because they're African-American or what have you. Then we need to express a, a slightly different kind of solidarity, a wider solidarity with that community. And, and that means then um, we, we need to center the people who are being marginalized or oppressed or suffering. So when it comes to the, um, the wake of things, in the wake of, of George Floyd's, Floyd's murder, Ahmaud Arbery's murder, you know, I just make it really clear to our church, um, we're, not, we're not debating Black Lives Matter. That's, that's, that's an incontrovertible principle. Uh, and we're not spending any time to separate that principle from the organization in order to sort of satisfy the discomfort of evangelicals uh, or, or white brothers or sisters or, or others um, who are attempting to center their own sensibility in the conversation. Hmm. We're literally talking about black bodies in the street. Right. That's not the time to be talking about an organization most of us have no part in and many of us didn't even know existed <laughs> in, in yeah. order to make you comfortable. And so part of what I'm having to learn to do more effectively is to center the right people um, in the conversation as the conversation demands, and then to have us take action uh, as a congregation and as individuals uh, accordingly. Hmm. Part of your leadership of that church and in, in, in those moments was to invite your church at the end of the sermon to walk to the U.S. Capitol and the White House and to, uh, as you said, to march and to sing and to pray in the case of justice. Can you take us through that? Can you take us through when you had the first inclination that the end of this sermon was, I think it was on Cain and Abel, mm -hmm. the brothers fighting? Yeah, the brothers fighting. Like the inclination that the part of the postscript of this sermon was, and now we march. What, what, why did they come to you, and what did you hope to accomplish through that? Well, I can't take any credit for the idea of the march and the organization of the march. There were six women uh, in, my, in, in our congregation, three in our congregation, three from a sister church, Mercy of Christ Fellowship, that we planted a couple years ago, um, who had the idea for uh, faith and works and for pulling together this march. And it was wonderful because up until that point, um, there had been some things led by uh, pastors to gather and pray and things of that sort, but nothing sort of at large for Christian churches. And so I was approached by a deaconess in our, in our church, Hannah Baker, asking what I thought about the idea of a march. And I was over the moon because, frankly, for the three or four days leading up to that, I was, I was really in a funk because mm. I, I felt all the things, but didn't have a, a constructive, creative outlet to do anything with what I was feeling. And so I was, I was kind of folding in on myself, or had been for a few days. Uh, and so Hannah uh, suggested this on behalf of the, the other ladies. And I said, absolutely, I'm, I'm all in on this. And um, she asked if, you know, I, she basically, I love it when people are playing your life for you. She <laughs> says, uh, well, here are the things that we need you to do. Uh, would you connect with pastor friends? Would you um, tweet it out, so on and so forth? So um, the idea was really theirs. And I love that also because that 
that's really consistent with my own theology of a local church, that hmm. um, it's not the pastor's job to do all the ministry, it's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And we, we want to see people use their giftings and ideas and pursue them, uh, because much more is going to flourish when people are, are set free to do that. Um, and so, yeah, in, in like three days, these ladies pulled together this march um, from two places in sort of east of the river from Ward 7 and Ward 8. And we converged there uh, at the Capitol for a time of prayer. Mm. And we were really um, we were really encouraged at what the Lord did in terms of bringing out people from churches all over the kind of region uh, to gather, to pray, to, to make our voices heard in support of um, reforming policing and reforming criminal justice. And, and as a church, then, my job was, again, to sort of preach and address the moment um, and to sort of call us into action. Now, some people marched and, and others couldn't, either because of COVID or health-related issues. Yeah. Um, and others just had different lanes that they run in. So we have folks who are um, working on the Hill or um, folks who work in various advocacy organizations or uh, folks who felt more comfortable calling their uh, representative or legislator if they're from Virginia or, or, or Maryland. And so we just encourage people to, to get involved, that the time for bystanding is long since passed. And um, I think as pastors, we have that responsibility uh, biblically to command our people to do good works, Paul says repeatedly in Titus and in Timothy, um, to insist that they do good works. And um, I think in, in sort of Bible-believing churches are so nervous about sort of works righteousness and justification by works, which is another gospel, that we have omitted any place for works uh, in the Christian life. And yet Ephesians 2 tells us that we have been, we've been saved. We're God's workmanship uh, for good works that he has prepared for us to walk into. Um, and so that sermon, that application was, a, was simply trying to fulfill those biblical um, charges to pastors to insist on um, the people doing good in the name of Christ. What what practically is accomplished by a march? Because if everybody's marching is in agreement, we're just marching with the choir or marching to the choir or whatever, right? Like what what is the actual, like what's the benefit of this kind of demonstration of unity? Sure. Well, there's nothing wrong with marching with the choir because part of what yeah. you want to do is grow the choir, right? Yeah, so so one, so one of the benefits is, is simply raising awareness and yeah. spreading the message. So in that march, for example, there were tons of people who knew, hey, I think what happened to George Floyd was deeply wrong, uh, and I want to say at least that. But then beyond that, I don't know what to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so we were able to sort of give people some action steps uh, to sort of go along with that sense of, of moral, um, yeah, moral rectitude, you know, some actions to sort of uh, pursue. So, so raising consciousness. Um, educating in terms of um, giving people some pointers around action. Um, and then you, you, I really don't, I, we shouldn't underestimate the symbolic power yeah. of, of seeing thousands and thousands of people in the streets, in cities across the country, and indeed across the world, um, all protesting for uh, an end to this kind of injustice. That that put things on the radar of elected officials in ways that would have been really difficult without mass movement, without mass demonstration. 
and so we've seen the introduction of, of legislation in local levels, at state levels, and, wow. and nationally that probably would not have had much traction uh, had not the events of uh, Ahmaud Arbery's killing, George Floyd's mm-hmm. killing, Breonna Taylor's killing, not led to the kind of um, mass demonstration and protest that we've seen. And that gave wind to policy formation formulations that had been out there for a while, but again, had not gotten traction. And so uh, I do think that while sort of marches and protests don't necessarily themselves result in uh, a specific outcome, they do sort of grease the tracks and put wind in the sails to mix metaphors um, for, for outcomes and actions um, in different places. I, um, I appreciate you explaining that it's, um, it it is pretty powerful to see. And and really the reason that I, you know, it came to our attention is that it made news. And so beyond your own, uh, you know, you're very high profile and people know who you are and see you speaking and see the work that you and your brothers are doing on the front porch. But in addition, it turns out that Mitt Romney and David Platt showed up. Uh, and if people don't know possibly who they are, um, what's salient to the question is that they have some fairly different expressions of faith that maybe, I mean, Mitt Romney is uh, Mormon and David Platt, I believe, is deep in leadership in the, uh, is it the Southern Baptist Convention? Mm-hmm. Am, am I correct on that? Southern and so there, are these, so, yeah, so there are these people from differing backgrounds of, of faith coming together. I'm curious what it meant to you to have both people of that profile because right that profile equals exposure it's not like they're more Mm. special people but Mm. i mean it becomes a like the news story takes on a a different form when mitt romney posts a selfie what did it what was it like for you and for the group of people that organized this to have such a cross-section of people of faith uh and also of just of profile there it's both a a blessing and a and a burden um it's a blessing to stand with friends like david platt um, whom I've known for a number of years and who's a man yeah. of tender conscience and deep conviction. And uh, I wasn't at all surprised that he and his family and, and folks from his church uh, decided to to march and to uh, be present. Um, mm-hmm. Really grateful for um, their friendship and, and, and their fellowship. And as you said, it helps to widen the reach of the message. Uh, yeah. And, and that, that, that felt like love. That felt like... Um, solidarity and encouragement and mm-hmm. was deeply blessed by that and and blessed to have someone like Mitt Romney sort of come out who as you mentioned before is Mormon and uh, probably in a different sort of political camp than many other people who are marching on that day um, but who has enough integrity to affirm black lives matter and this is an issue that we need to address and um, he just kind of showed up we didn't know we didn't know he yeah. was coming, but uh, he just kind of showed up. And again, being who he is as a senator and and former um, uh, uh, nominee for for the presidency, um, yeah, it it he increased the reach and the volume of the message uh, in doing that. So that's a great blessing. When, when I say burden, what what I mean very simply is um, because of the presence of uh, some of the folks that we've mentioned. The, the the march got sort of cast in um, in evangelical terms, um, and that's that's not a that's a that's a that's a label with baggage, right? Yes. Yeah. And so there there are many folks who marched with us who've been who have been quite comfortable with the label evangelical, and there are many of us who uh, would would 
wish not to be framed that way. Um, because again, some folks not knowing the church well, world very well won't be thinking in theological terms. They'll be thinking in partisan uh, political terms. And we weren't out there for partisanship. Um, we, we weren't out there for the kinds of things that um, evangelical gets associated with in terms of uh, political behavior. We were out there for the, the rightness of the cause. And, and that's why I think many people uh, across the spectrum um, would, would have felt comfortable and glad to join in. So it's a little bit of a burden to try and keep the, the message clear and to keep the associations clear. Um, but on, on balance, I think we're really glad for the widening of the reach of the message and the, and the amplification of its volume uh, with, with all who participated. Hmm. You are uh, the the first pastor we've able, been able to um, spend some time with on the show, specifically talking about um, the the conversation that we're having. And I, I'm wondering if I can take a virtual seat in your office and ask you some uh, theology pastor type questions that um, that we might be wrestling with. Are we are we okay to do that for a sure, few moments? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, pastor. Thank you. Um, so the first one is, there is so much pain in the world. And uh, while there's a national outcry for reform that's happening, there's still people dying almost daily. Uh, how can someone be hopeful in the midst of such suffering? Mm. Or, and I guess, should they be hopeful? I guess maybe the premise of the question, should they be hopeful? And if so, how can they be in the midst of the suffering? They should be hopeful, but um, hope is a discipline. Hope is a practice. And um, it's, it's important to fight for hope. And I, and I say this as someone who in the last five years um, came to understand that his biggest spiritual battle in that five years was against hopelessness, uh, oh, yeah. particularly as I, I looked at the lack of um, yeah, appropriate response, in my view, uh, from other Christian leaders and indeed sometimes the oppositional response of some Christian leaders, my, my, my biggest struggle became a kind of hopelessness. Um, and so I, I say this as a, as a fellow struggler, um, we have to come to understand that hope is a practice, is a discipline. Uh, it's something that we cultivate and, and nurture. Um, and the way that we keep hope alive I to, you know, I right. uh, sound a little bit too much like Jesse Jackson there, but the hope that right. we, the way that we keep hope alive is that we keep our eyes on Psalm 16, 8. We, we set God before our eyes and we, we read the truth in the scripture about God and who is it, who he is. His throne is established in justice and righteousness. He, he always does what is right. Um, he's merciful and he's kind and he's bringing a kingdom a kingdom that he's already inaugurated, bringing it that kingdom in its full, in which there is no uh, injustice. And so we want to get a, a God-centered, God-entranced vision of the world uh, and believe the truth about Scripture. There's the second thing that, that hope requires, is then we have to see through, um, we have to see through the imperfections, the weaknesses, the, the downright tragedies of the world. Um, to, to that reality. In other words, we, we can't sort of stop with the things that are broken. We have to build an Ebenezer. We have to remember the things that have been fixed. 
right? So we're having this conversation in the context of, of civil rights. Well, you know, the country has come a long way, and we dare not forget that. We're not, we've not traveled all the ground we need to travel, but man, this is a really different conversation than it would have been 55 years ago. Um, and, and we have to acknowledge that, and we have to see past present difficulties uh, to future promise, uh, to have a kind of faith that, that resists and defies um, life by sight. And, um, and so the, the last thing we need to do then is to sort of make sure that we curate our social media feeds, our, our news feeds, uh, even our friendships, to be sure that we have people um, making inputs into our life that are, are making deposits of grace and encouragement mm-hmm. and are helpful in, 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 in helping us to look out beyond circumstance uh, to the God who's ruling all things um, sovereignly, God who will um, put all things right. Sometimes my, my hopelessness has been connected to a kind of constant feed and a passive posture uh, of things that are just always dissatisfied, always negative, always angry, um, and seems never, ever to see God's face. What about people that are angry? I mean, because I mean, I imagine, I mean, people are rightfully angry and then they read, you know, the latest or see the latest video of someone being killed and they're just furious. Are they in some way outside of the will and intention of God by having that anger or how is that put in its right proportion? Yeah. The scripture is pretty clear that the the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, um, and it's pretty clear. And and so and so that means then we we shouldn't be acting on sinful anger as if that's going to bring God's kingdom. It it, it won't. Um, and and the scripture is pretty clear when it says to be angry but do not sin. So there is a righteous indignation uh, that that can legitimately uh, fuel our advocacy. Um, but again, it should not be married to sinful action or sinful attitude or sinful mean. So, so what we want is um, to feel that indignation. Um, that's, that's appropriate. We shouldn't deny righteous indignation. But then we want to find creative and constructive ways to, to express it, to use it. Um, and, and that's where I think the rubber meets the road. So what are you going to do? With that indignation, are we going to just be sort of morally superior, self-satisfied people? Uh, I'm angry, mm-hmm. and so therefore I get it, but other people don't. Um, well, that's 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 not that's not particularly uh, godly and productive. No, we've got to go some steps further and to say, okay, I think I see some things clearly. I think I have a, a moral perception here um, that's righteous and good, uh, and now I need to put feet to my faith. I need to. Uh, add works to this faith, works of righteousness. And so what I would want to say to that person is get involved in something. Uh, mm-hmm. Get involved in something constructive. Get involved in something redemptive. Get, in, get involved in something that looks like it, it at least takes some baby steps toward the vision of a, of a new world, a new society, a, a, a righteousness that, that motivates you. Um, and, and then learn a discipline, a, a disciplined involvement that outlasts the anger, right? Because sooner or later, you're going to stop being angry. And that's a healthy thing, right? You can't, we can't always be angry. And so what we need in place of anger 
is a longer burning fuel. Um, and, and so we're going to learn to, we're going to need to learn to work from, from love. We're going to need to learn to work from a genuine affection for our neighbors and, um, and to be motivated by uh, a grace instinct, um, and to be motivated by a, a vision, a positive vision for what we think the world or what we think our neighborhoods can be. And that should hopefully help us to, uh, remain sort of uh, to sustain our involvement toward righteousness rather than being faddish, rather than being hashtag activists or mm. um, rarely, or, or, or rather than being merely, uh, again, self-righteous uh, about the. All right. Our last uh, pastoral visit uh, question. People have been praying for an end to racism for a long time and we march and we use our voices and we trust that God is working as a Christian and as a believer. How do we reconcile the fact that people in America have been crying out to God for, what, 400 plus years and still there are people dying, still there are prisons that are overcrowded? Uh, At some point, I mean, like, don't you ask, maybe you don't ask the question, but I would imagine people ask the question, where is God? Where, where is, when's it going to happen? Where's the accountability for 400 years of praying for an end to this systemic racism? Like, when's God going to show up in this? How do you, how do you, how do you respond to that, Pastor? <laughs> no, it's a great question. Um, actually, God's always been present. The question is, where have we been, right? Um, so God is, God is suffering. Son is suffering on the cross for our sins. He's entered in in the most profound and deep way uh, into the brokenness of the world and the sin of the world. Uh, and the cross teaches us that. Um, but not only the cross, I mean, you made reference to Genesis 4 earlier, um, Abel's blood crying from the ground uh, to God, and God uh, addresses Cain uh, in judgment, uh, and he still hears the blood of people uh, poured out. Um, and, and we are aware from Romans that uh, there's a sense in which people are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. So we ought not, we ought not mistake God's patience in delaying his coming and delaying his judgment for indifference or unrighteousness. Mm. His patience is, is meant to lead us to repentance. Um, and so rather than interpret the, the patience as God being a kind of absentee God, I think, I think biblically we should interpret his patience a, as an opportunity for more people to come into his kingdom uh, through repentance and faith in his son. Uh, and if our instinct is to be redemptive, we're glad for that patient uh, on that level. The other thing I think is, is really important for people to recognize is that, that God has been at work. Again, we, we need to put today's sense of impatience about injustice in the longer history of the cry for justice. And, and one could say, I think legitimately, that, that God's justice has been unfolding for 400 years now in this, um, and that it's been moving forward, um, sometimes with staggered steps, suffering setbacks, but it has been moving forward nonetheless. Um, we have not in this country uh, seen the chains of slavery um, for, you know, 175 years or however long it is, 150 years. We, we, have, not, um, we have not seen the signs of Jim Crow um, for another 50 years. Um, these are, these are, 
are, are realities that still mark our society, but but these are realities that have been vanishing um, because of God's justice and God's mercy uh, to the country. And so, this is a process. You know, the struggle continues. Uh, and we have to view our, our present struggle in light of the longer march toward justice. Is the is the final thing that I would say. I, I do think we have to reject and refuse the temptation to utopian kinds of ideas. Hmm. So this world is always going to be fallen. It's always going to be broken. We're always going to have racism. Always going to have injustice. Um, the removal of those things, in some ultimate sense only happens when Christ comes again and brings his kingdom in full. Now, we can make progress, and we should make progress. So saying, hey, we're always going to have these things, that's not to be confused with encouraging apathy. Um, it It is simply to say that we need to make sure that our expectations are tempered by uh, biblical truth and biblical reality. And the truth of the matter is we're going to have all kinds of sins, including racism and injustice, uh, until the Lord comes back. Um, and so we can't be surprised by, by the, the prevalence of it, the continuance of it, um, but we can make progress in, in its further eradication, in its further removal from society, or at least in the, in the development of um, restraints and laws and appropriate uh, punishments uh, for those injustices. And that's, that's what we're fighting for. Thank you for that answer. Um, last question. Do you remember, and can you share a bit of what you shared? You said that when you, at the end of the march, maybe you said that you spoke, you, you preached when you finally got there. Do you remember at all what you said? Yeah, I spoke a little bit about the gospel. Hmm. Can you tell? wanted to make it clear that the biggest injustice uh, or justice issue, the biggest justice issue we face uh, as human beings, is is not the the reformation of of the police. It's not the uh, reform of the criminal justice system. Those are big issues, and they need our attention. The biggest justice issue we face is the justice of God. That that God is holy. That He does not overlook sin. That all sin will be accounted for on the day of judgment when we appear before God as judge. And it'll be accounted for in one of two ways, that those who die in their sins, never having repented of their sins, never having had their sins atoned for by faith in Christ crucified and resurrected, they will have to suffer the judgment of their sins eternally. So there's, there's no, there's no um, vigilante neighbor, there's no uh, abusive police officer who will ever escape um, God's judgment and God's justice. We can be confident of that. So it will either be satisfied by God's judgment of us because we're still in our sins, or justice will be satisfied um, by God's judgment of his son, Jesus, who who died for our sins, who was crushed for our iniquities. Um, And um, we, we, we escape God's judgment and receive his forgiveness when we put our faith in this Christ crucified for us and resurrected from the grave. Uh, so the biggest conundrum, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, is, is not how do we fix human criminal justice systems. The, criminal, the biggest conundrum is how is God himself going to be just, having been patient for so long with sinners? 
And, and the answer to that is the cross. Um, and through Jesus, he is both just and the justified, the one who declares righteous, all those who have faith in us. And so we had, we have special need of making sure we have resolved that justice issue um, most fundamentally. Um, and, and then we can work with good conscience uh, and freedom and faith on those other justice issues we care about. Well, my profound thanks to Pastor T, as well as the church family of Anacostia River Church, for all the work that all of you are continuing to do. Pastor T can be found on Twitter, as well as on thefrontporch.org. All links are in our show notes. The conversation that has begun here will continue over on the New Activist Social, both Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of them have the same handle, New Activist Is. One word, New Activist Is. A big thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. His music, merch, coffee, etc. can be found at prophiphop.com, or he is on Twitter, at prophiphop. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Pastor Tabidi Anyabwile, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>